Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary peoples alike, you know what that music means. It's time for another amazing, fan-tabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 85 and number one of the NFL 2021 season. It's football Sunday, everybody. By the end of today, or maybe by the time you're listening to this already completed, you will have had 14 NFL games on your docket and Andy Dalton playing against the Los Angeles Rams, which technically counts as NFL football, even though I disagree with the premise. So we will have my picks coming up towards the end of the show, and it'll get us ready for a few of these games here today. But first, one of the purposes of Wired Up was to talk about college football, and we are going to talk about some college football. Because we had the game of the year go down in Columbus, Ohio, for the first time since 2017. The Ohio State Buckeyes have lost a home game in the regular season. It's the first time in Ryan Day's program history, going back now in its third season fully. He he coached when uh, Urban Meyer may or may not have covered up some evidence around sexual assault within, or I guess domestic violence would be a better way because it was the ex-wife of Zach Smith, but uh, he coached like three or four games in there during the fourth season, but third season of Ryan Day at Ohio State, and they have lost a home game for the first time since 2017. And this is coming off of a week where we talked extensively about Clemson losing at home to Georgia. I guess it was technically neutral site, but it was in North Carolina, so it felt like a home game for Clemson. We talked about that last week, and it continued into this point where Oregon takes down Ohio State, one of these like second-tier powerhouses in college football. And so Ohio State and Clemson's stories kind of go together. And of course, we must talk about how this was a loss from the very get-go for Ohio State, not because they went down early in the game, but because the uh, the band guy for Ohio State, the person who leads the band out and throws the baton around, uh, epically stumbled down the tunnel, uh, getting ready for the first Ohio State game with fans in over two years, or I guess just under two years, but still, first game with fans, he totally tumbled down the stairs, and I saw it originally, and I wasn't certain whether or not that was like intended or whether it was just something that totally went the way it did, just like as a total mistake. And then I saw it go viral later, and no, oh, okay, that wasn't intentional. That was just the band guy going down in a hilarious fashion, and everyone in the stadium just like gasping, oh, when he goes down. Uh, that wasn't even actually the funniest, weirdest thing. And this will probably get reiterated on memes of the weekend, but I'll spoil it a little bit now where you had the Oregon duck. You guys know the cute little mascot that the ducks have with the orange legs and all that. Well, anyways, so I'm watching Ohio State go into the end zone. And for some reason in the sideline corner of the Ohio State end zone, you have the Oregon duck 
sitting on a golden inflatable chair using a shake weight while Ohio State is going into the red zone. And for those who don't know what a shake weight is, it became a meme a bunch of years ago as a workout tool that basically looks like uh, a, a like a dumb or not a dumbbell, like a little um, bar or whatever those little handheld weights are, like the free lift weights. It looks like one of those, and you shake it back and forth, and it it's like an arm workout basically. And it became a meme a bunch of years ago because it looks like you're jacking off a horse while you work out. And so the duck was like using one of these shake weights. It basically sitting in the end zone. Like if a fade to the corner had gone wrong, they would have totally taken out the duck who was sitting in a giant inflatable golden chair using a shake weight uh, for apparently no reason. There was no like distraction or what anything behind it. It just seemed like that was just what the Oregon duck does when he has the best seats in the house right along the Ohio State end zone, which was very jarring to see. But also, I think that is probably the best meme of the weekend. So those were the mo- the biggest takeaways from Oregon and Ohio State. Now for the serious analysis, because Oregon pretty much held this game in check from start to finish and picked apart an Ohio State front seven that was viewed as kind of a strong suit for the Buckeyes. The Buckeyes are in a bit of a rebuilding phase with a lot of sophomores and you know, second years, redshirt sophomores, redshirt freshmen, not a ton of dudes coming back. Chris Olave obviously chose to not be a late first-round pick, probably to the Baltimore Ravens, if we're being honest. Chose to stay at Ohio State instead of being a Baltimore Raven, which the money says that it's crazy to turn that down, and maybe Olave leaves a little bit on the table by going back to Ohio State. I don't think he's going to be a top 10 pick in this year's draft, but there's still a long ways to go. Olave may have left some money on the table to come back as a five-star recruit and first-round pick, went back to Ohio State. Now Ohio State's got like the most dominant receiving core in college football at this point. And so Oregon took advantage of a defense that was supposed to be the strong suit of the Buckeyes along with that stud wide receiver core that has like two five-star recruits and one four-and-a-half-star recruit uh, in Williams. And so Oregon, their running game intact today. And it begins with their semi-star running back, apparently four-star recruit C.J. Verdell from Modern Day High School. Shout-out San Diego 619 also, Chris Alave too. Chris Alave's from Mission Hills, so shout-out to the 619 as well down in San Diego. San Diego represented in the college football game of the year in Week 2, which is always the game of the year until the next best game of the year. And C.J. Verdell had 20 carries, 161 yards, two touchdowns. He broke off a play at the first half that kind of signified like Oregon was here to stay, like broke off a 75-yard touchdown That was kind of like one of those you look up and it's like, oh, Oregon actually has a pretty good chance in this one. And so CJ made light work of a strong front seven for Oregon State. And they went with tons of outside zone runs, which is exactly why they brought in Joe Moorhead to be their offensive coordinator. For those who are unfamiliar with the journey of Joe Moorhead, it is truly amazing what has happened with this dude. So this dude gains his rise to prominence 
as an offensive coordinator at Penn State. And his zone running schemes are basically taken straight from the from the playbooks of old-timey... Basically, it's taken straight from the playbooks of like the old, old, old power, uh, zone running offense. Like the thing that Mike Shanahan used to evolve from. Because Joe Moorhead spent some time in some weird places. He was a graduate assistant for Pitt. Played football at Fordham University as a quarterback. As a power option quarterback. Went to Munich to play quarterback, then was at Georgetown for four years, then moved over to Akron where he was a wide receivers coach. Then he was a quality control coach and a passing game coordinator and then ends up becoming the OC at Akron. So he spends like four years at Georgetown, five years at Akron, gets to UConn, who by the way, UConn had one of the funniest stories last week because the guy he was coaching with there, Randy Etzall, ends up retiring at the end of the season, and then they tell him you got to piss off before he even gets the chance to retire. So he's with Edsall. Edsall and UConn made, famously made the Orange Bowl out of the dying Big East. This was as the Big East was falling apart. Famously out of the dying Big East, they end up making an Orange Bowl despite being unranked because the winner of the Big East was guaranteed a berth in the Orange Bowl and all the teams were bailing out of that conference at the time. So then he takes the job at his alma mater of Fordham and Fordham is a D2 school and he leaves Fordham to become the co- the quarterback's coach at Penn State, who's kind of like fast-tracking his way, but usually you make the jump once you become the head coach to remain a head coach. Like famously, Nick Saban left Kent State to be the uh, defensive coordinator with the Browns, which was a strange pivot, but less uncommon at the time. This is a weird one now in the, the 21st century. Like once you get a head coaching job, usually you upgrade to head coaching jobs. But he goes from Fordham to QB's coach at Penn State, starts calling the offense under Saquon Barkley, and then one year of Miles Sanders, which obviously are two NFL caliber running backs with zone outside runs, then gets hired at Mississippi State, then gets fired at Mississippi State after just two years, which rarely do college coaches ever get the boot after two years. Like something really bad goes wrong or something really bad has to happen for you to get fired after two years, like Willie Taggart levels of bad. And the reason was like mistreatment of players and some potential sanctions coming down for Mississippi State. But anyways, he gets fast-tracked to a head coaching job because he was in line to get a job in the NFL, goes to Mississippi State, SEC, like one of these coveted SEC jobs, gets fired immediately and ends up at Oregon as one of the best offensive coordinators in college football. By the way, makes a million dollars. So there you go. Only a few coordinators make that much. So he ended up at Oregon with Mario Cristobal. And he ends up, after this amazing journey now at Oregon with the highlight of his career, beating Ohio State, which tops his previous greatest accomplishment of his career, which was beating Ohio State with Saquon Barkley and Penn State. So, Moorhead schemes with the zone runs. They scored like three touchdowns on the same play during the game, pretty much dominated all the way through. 
Uh, and then for the Ohio State Buckeyes, C.J. Stroud missed a bunch of passes that I'm used to seeing be completions just from watching uh, quarterbacks who are better than C.J. Stroud, which is usually just a lot of NFL football. I watch definitely more NFL football than college football and watch a lot of high-end college football, which if you're watching Big Ten football, like I've been doing a lot for some reason here early on in the season, it's a lot of like the class, I, the joke I make is the classic Big Ten three-yard runs. And it's a lot of those, so sometimes quarterbacks aren't asked to make big plays. But Stroud missed a bunch of them. There was one play where it was 35-21 Oregon, and Ohio State was going in on a third down from like the 25-yard line, I want to say. And he throws a ball to the end zone with the receiver beating his man. And he throws it over and behind his receiver, even though he had him beat. And I'm just used to watching Justin Herberts and Justin Fields of the world complete those passes just as second nature because they're the highest skilled leveled players. There was an underthrow on a touchdown. They end up scoring on the drive anyways, but there was a total underthrow when Williams beat a receiver deep or beat a corner deep, just totally underthrew him. Um, left a ball out for a tight end to get hit when he had a touchdown. He could have put a laser on it, but instead lofts it up. Tight end gets rocked, drops the ball at the end of the third quarter, and then that drive ends with a turnover on downs because they had a non-pass interference, should have been pass interference call that got Ohio State fans definitely upset. And then obviously he has the INT effectively closed out the game with like two minutes left to go uh that was just pretty much like throwing it right to the other player instead of a throw away to avoid fourth down so cj stroud was missing passes i'm used to seeing converted by nfl quarterbacks and this extends to watching justin fields at ohio state over the last two years and watching trevor lawrence at clemson over the last two years And I told you we'd bring this back to Clemson a bit because the stories of Ohio State and Clemson over the first two weeks pretty much overlap because when you think of like the the hierarchy of college football, you think of Alabama, you think of Clemson, and you think of Ohio State. And so you have Stroud battling for the quarterback job out of camp at Ohio State and doesn't have the same projectables years in advance like you had with Justin Fields. During the 2019 season, for example, we were talking about Lawrence and Fields as locked in at number one and number two picks in the draft 17 months out of when that draft was going to happen. And then, by the way, Fields and Lawrence played twice in the college football playoff, each got one win with each having an all-time legendary performance, and then about two months before the draft, Fields didn't end up getting projected as the number one pick and unfortunately ends up swinging the other way, uh, falling to pick 11, but basically was a lock to be a top pick for most of the process. C.J. Stroud isn't that quarterback. D.J. Oyungalale, who we talked about last week, was putrid for Clemson does have some of those same projectabilities. He was the number one recruit in his class, someone who could be viewed as a top draft pick in 2023. So he does have the projectabilities, even if C.J. Stroud doesn't. Does this mean that, you know, 
they ha- they had the problem with Oyunglele also is that he hasn't had the blazing fast start of a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Fields who lost zero regular season games in the case of Trevor Lawrence his entire career. Does this mean that Ohio State and Clemson are dominant super teams guaranteed to make the playoffs with Alabama every year like written in pencil? No, definitely not. Yes, though, they are undoubtedly programs two and three in all of college football with dozens of first-round picks on their team every year, even if sometimes those first-round picks are going to be freshmen and sophomores like with Ohio State this year. What we've learned from the first two weeks is that the gap between those two teams, Clemson and Ohio State, and the rest of the second and third tier schools is a lot closer than we previously thought. And those second tier schools are teams that are always hanging around the New Year's Six Bowl games. Um, Texas A&M, Georgia is obviously the biggest example. Oregon out of the Pac-12 is the best example the Pac-12 can provide, which we'll laugh at the Pac-12 a little bit tomorrow because as... The Pac-12 giveth, the Pac-12 taketh away with bad losses. Um, But you could go further down the line. Wisconsin usually hangs around there. Michigan, Penn State. Those are the second and third tier schools of college football. Florida is always right there. Um, No one in the ACC. The ACC is just trash. Um, But anyways, potentially the gap between... Ohio State and Clemson and Alabama is larger than we thought, but keep in mind that Ohio State lost by 35 points to Alabama last January, so we kind of already had that feeling in the back of our minds. Maybe Ohio State and Clemson are closer to those teams than we thought, and maybe they aren't guaranteed to make the playoff. Like we discussed with Oyungalale last week, Stroud will get better with time. He's going to get reps against the Indianas and Rutgers of the Big Ten coming up over the next few weeks. After Oregon, their hardest game of the season is Penn State. And no other top 15 teams currently other than Penn State. It's like Michigan. Michigan State are like the hardest games on their schedule other than Penn State. And those are not ranked opponents right now. If Ohio State goes undefeated and Oregon succumbs to the curse that is the Pac-12, they'll be all right. Ohio State's going to be all right. Where they could be worried is where they sit compared to Clemson and Alabama and just maybe Oklahoma and Georgia. Let's talk about Oregon now. Because Oregon has carved out a really great niche for themselves. And this victory against Ohio State is the culmination of that work that they have done over the past four to five years. Pretty much since uh, the end of the Marcus Mariota era in Oregon. But really, we could date it all the way back to Chip Kelly. And this is what we're going to talk about here is based on this idea or basically this conclusion there is no way to win a national championship in college football without having a national recruiting base 
And what I mean by this is that back in the 80s and 90s in college football, Miami and Florida State were national powerhouses basically by just recruiting Florida. The state of Florida, and as Miami calls it, the state of Miami, as Howard Schnellenberger quotes it. Texas and Texas A&M basically built college football powerhouses by exclusively recruiting within the state. And Oklahoma and Nebraska built powerhouses by exclusively recruiting in Texas. Ohio State won national championships by recruiting exclusively within the Ohio and Great Lakes regions. Same things with Michigan during the 1990s with Desmond Howard, Charles Woodson, basically just recruit Ohio, Michigan, and the Great Lakes region. Now to win in college football, you realistically need to have a national recruiting base, which is what Chip Kelly had, but also Chip Kelly was a massively innovative coach. And so when Chip Kelly leaves, Mark Helfrich inherits the remnants of that team, including Marcus Mariota, and eventually it falls apart. They have a 4-8 and eight season. Helfrich gets fired. I think he's now the offensive coordinator with the Chicago Bears, unless he got fired from that and he's back on TV. So then they go to Willie Taggart, and it's pretty much a lot of duds after that. But the recruiting class kind of steps up a little bit. So Taggart starts off with a 7-6 and six season, then after one year leaves to take the job at Florida State, which enters Mario Cristobal. And Mario Cristobal comes from the Miami program. He is at the, at the heart of the University of Miami program. Uh, is where he gets his roots. This is like when Michael Irvin is playing there and when they're going against the university. Uh, and this is Dennis Erickson losing control where the the players are basically running the team. And there's like a ton of power. And basically they beat Texas in a crazy bowl game where the players are like stomping out the opponents basically. But anyways, that's where Cristobal's background is, is from those Miami teams. And across the last three years, Cristobal has built a team culminating with this victory today over the last, this is now his fourth season with the Ducks. Started by Willie Taggart, perfected by Mario Cristobal in his fourth year. Oregon has built a regional power on the West Coast at a time when regional recruiting no longer exists in college football. What do I mean by this? Oregon has basically decided to recruit the region of the country west of Colorado. They have decided that they are going to recruit exclusively California, Oregon, Nevada, Washington, and Hawaii. They are going to take that whole region and bring it to Oregon in the strategy of former Miami recruiting the state of Florida, Ohio and Michigan recruiting the Great Lakes, and regional recruiting in college football that no longer exists because television contracts are no longer regional. You know, you can turn on ESPN and watch any game any weekend. It's not like it used to be. And so you have the five-star recruits, the best of the best on the West Coast, are worth it so much that they're still getting poached by the best programs. And I can point to four examples. These are the four biggest West Coast recruits of the last five years. 
These are the five-star recruits, top of the top five-star recruits that came from the West Coast. Tua from Hawaii. Najee Harris from San Francisco. Bryce Young from Los Angeles. And I mentioned him a little bit earlier. Chris Alave from the 619. All first-round picks, all five-star recruits, all super projectable players. So everyone in the country is going to invest resources in those players. And so Najee Harris turns down offers from Oregon and USC to go play at Alabama. Tua goes to Alabama. Alave turns down USC to go to Ohio State. Bryce Young literally commits to USC, decommits, and recommits to Alabama. And if that isn't the perfect example of how resources and desire to play for the the factory that produces top players, I don't know what's a better example. So all those guys leave the West Coast to go to the powerhouses of college football, Alabama, Ohio State. The four-star recruits where you can find them, you can you can find them more plentifully in Texas or in Florida, or in Georgia, or in New York, or Indiana. Places that are closer to home for some of these colleges. Those are the players that are getting recruited by the Alabamas, by the Georgias, the Oklahomas, to fill the ranks. Is that after the five stars are gone, the rest are four stars, and all these top programs at least want to invest resources regionally. Because think about it. If you're going to recruit a player from Texas and you're Oklahoma, let's say, you have a player in Texas and you have a player in California, you view them exactly the same as their profiles, same position, same grades. Which one are you going to invest in? You're going to invest in Texas because it costs less resources, whether it's plane flights, whether it's visits, and quite frankly, you just have a better chance of landing the guy who's been watching Texas football or wants to stay slightly closer to home. So in that case, the four-star recruits on the West Coast slide through the cracks a bit because there are no college football powerhouses west of the Mississippi River other than Oklahoma, which is still pretty much on the Mississippi River. It's Alabama, it's Clemson, it's Florida, it's Georgia, it's Ohio State. And so, you don't have those powerhouses anymore. And the West Coast, those four stars, those three and a half stars, they're being left for the pickings. And USC has tried some of this. And USC has been great at recruiting the Los Angeles and San Diego areas as the premier school. UCLA's tried to build a program this way that's now ranked in the top 15. But Oregon's been the best with Cristobal of getting these four-star recruits from all across the West Coast. Is this going to make Oregon a national powerhouse? No, certainly not. But it'll make Oregon just good enough to maybe, on the best of days, four years later when you get your opportunity to beat 
Ohio State at their home stadium. It's an amazing run that Oregon has been on. And it's a really, really cool idea that they reel in the four stars from all across San Diego, Los Angeles, Northern California, Washington, Hawaii. Oregon sometimes gets the top prospects like Penay Sewell, who was obviously the number seven pick in last year's draft and is originally from the American Samoa. So this is the recruiting base of the University of Oregon. Can we get the entire West Coast with prospects that maybe, just maybe, these other schools don't want to invest resources in because there's plenty of four stars closer to home where they are? Oregon's built a program that can hang around the top ten year after year, make the Rose Bowl, get more people in the door. It's a way to build a power, and that is exactly what Mario Cristobal is doing at Oregon right now with the assistance of one of the best offensive coordinators in college football in Joe Moorhead. Lo and behold, in year two, they won the Rose Bowl. In year three, they lost the Fiesta Bowl, which is also a New Year's Six game against Iowa State. And with this win against Ohio State, Oregon controls their destiny to make it to the college football playoff. This is a new style of recruiting that is taking advantage of old ways and the quote-unquote market inefficiencies of college football that make it so that schools want to prioritize resources to players they feel they might have a better chance of getting. And Oregon has said we're going to recruit every three-and-a-half and and four-star recruit west of Colorado. And... Gosh darn it, it has worked wonders for the Oregon Ducks, culminating with this amazing victory against Ohio State. So as much as I give the Pac-12 crap, props are due to Oregon because it has been a really cool story that no one, at least not myself or college football people, were really paying attention to until they whooped up on Ohio State and announce themselves and announce their arrival into the National College Football Playoff picture. We've gotten our picks from Walter Mitchell we've gotten our picks from our boy Cam over at DSD and we've gotten our picks from Blake Jude which can only mean one thing it's time for me to give my locks of the week doon doon let's lock it in so for those who don't remember the four of us are competing for our picks of the week All season long, we're going to go 18 weeks, 90 picks, see who has the highest win total at the end of the season, see if anyone can topple Blake Jude's unbelievable 59% from last year. It'll be interesting to see if someone does indeed do it. Everyone has picked every single game, and so I get to get the extra little pickings from the litter. So, first game. I'm going to lock in here. I am going to lock in the New York Jets. Doon, doon. 
at plus six versus the Carolina Panthers, which goes directly against Walter's pick in favor of Sam Darnold. And if he heard me making this pick, he would point out that Sam Darnold's supposed to be my boy. I was super high on him in the draft, and I have learned through many years that Sam Darnold's just not that good. And uh, I don't know if the Jets will cover or win outright, but I'm just feeling the Jets are in a good position to at least keep it close against the Carolina Panthers. Feels like one of those games that's going to go right down to the wire on Sunday. Next pick I have, I will take the Jaguars, minus three against the Houston Texans. Doon, doon, lock it in. Shout out Michael Irvin and the NFL Game Day squad. Can't wait to watch them in the morning today. Well, really technically in like the next couple hours, but still... I am super duper excited about the Jaguars this year, and I'll be excited about them until about mid January, where we, or mid November, where we stop paying attention to the Jaguars because there are just more interesting stories going on. So, Jacksonville against Houston. I know it's a little cheap because betting against Houston is generally a good idea, but if you were to look at any game on the schedule this year and say which one could Houston win, this is the one that you'd probably pick at home against Jacksonville. I'm going to doon doon lock in the Jacksonville Jaguars at minus three. I'm also going to take the Chargers at minus one, which is essentially a pick 'em against Washington, the 10 o'clock start time on the for the West Coast team. And I, I've seen many a games in my childhood where the Chargers lose the West Coast home opener, but I do like the Chargers' chances. I love me some Justin Herbert, and obviously the storyline of the game is going to be Chargers offense versus Washington defense. Pretty much half the game is going to be fun. The other half, I hope the Red Zone channel skips over it for a good portion of the game. I think it's going to be a super fun game between the Chargers and Washington, but I think the Chargers could actually win this one pretty big. So I will doon doon lock in the Chargers on the board here. Moving over to the afternoon games, I am going to lock in the Miami Dolphins, the greatest football team. They'll take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. And I'm hoping that I get to sing that song and play the San Diego Superchargers song tomorrow as keeping with our traditions on the podcast if both of those teams win. So maybe I'm playing more with my heart than I am with my mind here. But it's picks. Just trying to stay above 500. Uh, the reason I take Miami, which is technically an upset because they're four and a half point dogs against the Patriots, Miami's offense is really unpredictable. And while I don't like their offensive line going up against the Patriots, and I think that's the point where this game could really get out of control, I think there is definitely a scenario where Miami uh, outshines. The Patriots, I have Jalen Waddell on my fantasy team, so I'm really hoping for him to emerge as a wide receiver one right out the gate and show us something from week one onward. I think Miami's offense is going to be built around that. They finally decided to make Devontae Parker a wide receiver two after seven years of waiting to see 
what he could become. He's a true wide receiver too. He's also feeling like one of those contract year guys. Uh, no Will Fuller in this game, but that shouldn't matter. They've got a Gasecki. We've done a whole podcast now on Gasecki's, so no need to elaborate on that further. Again, offensive line concerns are the part where I think this could fall apart for Miami, but I'll take the Dolphins, and I will finally take the Green Bay Packers. And I know it's one of those really good afternoon games. There's also Browns Chiefs, and there's also the... I think there's a, oh, the Dolphins and Patriots is the other good one, but uh, I think this one could be a route, route by the Packers in in Jacksonville against the Saints neutral site game, uh, and I am keeping with the pick that Stripe Hype made as well. So there's a couple where we agree here on the lists, but obviously some different picks. There was one game we didn't pick on any of the four picks, which was the 49ers and the Lions. Maybe we'll have some Man Campbell jokes on memes of the weekend coming up here in a few days. But ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble on this NFL Sunday. Thank you for stopping in to Wired Up. We'll be back with more episodes coming up this week as an NFL Monday as well as a memes of the weekend on Monday. So double episodes. Make sure to download both. Follow the Take It Easy podcast and leave those five-star reviews. We've got 425 of them, according to my count. So let's see if we can get it to 430 by the end of the weekend. Thanks, everybody, for stopping in here today. And as always... Oh, never mind. I just realized. I'm very tired, but I just realized it's not a Take It Easy, because this is technically wired up as part of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, which isn't live because it's a podcast. With that being said, let's just enjoy our football weekends, everybody. Talk to you again tomorrow.